And as you are taking your seat, would you open with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3? 1 Timothy chapter 3. Tonight we are, as I've mentioned, considering the doctrine of the church from the 1689 Confession. And as we prepare to do that, let's read 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 15. Verse 14, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So Paul the Apostle is writing to Timothy, and he says, I'm writing you for, well, for the main reason of telling you how one should conduct himself in the household of God which is the pillar of the truth. The church of God is the pillar of the truth. And so there are two things there that we should notice as we begin. First of all, uh, the scriptures, as we'll see, tell us what the church should look like as an institution on the earth. It tells us, the scriptures tell us what the church should look like. And secondly, the, the scriptures tell us what the church is. It is the unique institution of God. No other institution in all the earth is ever called the household of God or the pillar of the truth. So the church is uniquely called the household of God, and in the scriptures we find how we're to conduct ourselves or how we're to structure, how we're to order life in this unique institution of God. Uh, so that's what this chapter is dealing with. Again, there are 15 paragraphs, uh, and my goal is to actually make it through most of what's here tonight. Uh, see some raised eyebrows at that, but that is the goal. I think we can do it, uh, and, and basically the the aim for this evening is to get a big picture overview of what the church is and how it is to be governed and how it is to function. Uh, so there are certain minute details within these paragraphs that we definitely won't have time to talk about uh, this evening, but hopefully we can pull out the main meat of what's here, see where it's found in the scriptures, and uh, for some of us this will be more or less a, a reminder of very basic truths about the church. Uh, but hopefully for some, these, some of these concepts will be uh, will be new to you and, and will help you understand more of what the church is as it's described to us on the pages of the scripture. Uh, so if you have your outline, the outline's found in the bulletin, the paragraphs are found on that separate sheet, and uh, the outline begins with the first four paragraphs of the confession dealing with the nature of the church. So here we're asking the question, what is the church? If someone were to ask you the question, what is the church? In your own mind, how would you formulate a response to that? How would you answer the question, what is the church? Well, the confession answers it in a number of ways. First of all, it tells us that the church is universal. So this is found in the very first paragraph of this big sheet here. Paragraph one, it says, The universal or Catholic church may be called invisible with respect to the internal work of the Spirit and truth of grace. It consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ its head. The church is the spouse or the bride, the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the church then, according to paragraph one here in the confession, should be considered in its universal sense, or as it says there, the Catholic sense. And basically what it's saying is that at the most foundational level, the church is is the body of every single believer 
the, the body consisting of every single believer throughout all time and in all space. So if someone were to ask you, what is the church? The most foundational response would be, the church is the body of believers in all places at all times throughout history. That's what, that's what the church is in its universal sense. Uh, it's also called here Catholic. Um, so, so I'm sure many of you have, have heard that in some of the old creeds, um, but it's listed here, the Catholic church. It's not referring to the Roman Catholic church, but it's referring to the Catholic church in the sense of the one uh, universal church. Catholic is another way of saying universal or the all-encompassing church. Um, so when we talk about the Catholic Church and the Confession, we're not saying that the Roman Catholic Church is the, is the universal church. We're saying that the universal church is Catholic. It is one. It is united as an all-encompassing body. Um, so that's, on the most foundational level, that's what the church is. Every believer who is united to Christ throughout all time and in all places. And we see this in the Scripture. Sometimes church is used in that sense of the universal church, this one really big church that includes all believers everywhere. Um, some examples would be Colossians 1, verse 18. It says, Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. So the question is, when it says, Christ is the head of the church, when he's writing to Colossae, does Paul mean that Christ is the head of just one local church there? Christ is the head of the church in, Col in Colossae. Uh, Christ is the head of the church in Galatia. No, he's saying Christ is the head of the church that consists of all churches everywhere, all believers everywhere. Christ is the head of that universal church. All right, so there are another, another couple of passages we could go to for that. I think the point is clear. Church can mean universal church, big C church, but it can also mean local church, and that's letter B on the outline. So the nature of the church is on the first hand, it's universal, consisting of all believers everywhere throughout all time. The church is also local, and this is paragraph two of the confession. It says, all people throughout the world who profess the faith of the gospel and obedience to God by Christ according to the gospel, who do not destroy their own profession by any errors undermining gospel fundamentals or by unholy conduct, are and may be called visible saints. All particular individual and local congregations ought to be constituted of such people. So basically, What's being said here is what the Bible teaches, that this one universal church is comprised of or, or consists of many individual and local churches. Um, and so, for example, we read in the New Testament that Paul sends his greetings from the churches in a certain region or in a certain city, uh, or he travels and he strengthens various churches in a certain region in uh, a number of passages in the book of Acts. The point is, the plural is used over and over again in the New Testament to show just as there's one big universal church, that big universal church consists of lots of little local churches. Uh, well, not necessarily all that little, but smaller than the universal church, certainly. Um, so it's, there are local churches that make up the universal church. But if you notice back in paragraph one, if you look back there with me, it says that this church that's universal may also be called invisible how many of y'all have heard the church referred to as invisible before? Anybody? A couple people? Yeah, so a couple people have heard it referred to as invisible. What do you think it means? What do you think the confession is meaning when it says that the church universal can also be called invisible? Anyone want to shoot a, uh, a guess out at that? What's it mean by the invisible church? 
does it mean that there are certain Christians who bear no fruit of conversion, and therefore their conversion is invisible? No, I mean, certainly every Christian has some fruit of conversion, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the beginnings of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's no such thing as an invisible Christian in the sense that there's no evidence of conversion in their life, but they're invisible in the sense that you can't see the internal, internal work of the Holy Spirit himself upon the heart. That is an invisible work that takes place. We might see the fruit of that work, but we don't actually see the Holy Spirit changing someone's heart directly. We don't, we don't witness that act. No one does. God is the only one who witness, witnesses that sort of act. And so in that sense, there is an invisible church in that the Holy Spirit has done an invisible work in the hearts of all of those who are united to Christ. But the point that the confession is making now, and that the scriptures make, is that no one is merely invisible when it comes to their participation in the church. Uh, in other words, someone who is part of the universal church, which can also be called invisible, will also necessarily be part of the visible church, the local church. Uh, there's there's no, no warrant in scripture for a person who would content themselves to be part of the universal church without becoming part of the local church. Uh, so you can't just be an invisible Christian out there. The, the scriptures say you must be a visible Christian, bearing fruit in the life of a local congregation. Uh, and so that is the point that is being made here, and it's, uh, the, the argument might be made. I've heard it something along these lines. I've heard it made by certain individuals. Um, you know, you ask them, oh, you're a Christian. Yes, I'm a Christian. Where do you go to church? Oh, I I don't go to a church because I'm part of the church. I, I, don't, I don't need to be part of a local body of believers because I'm, see, the whole world of believers is, is the body that I belong to. And so I don't need to be committed to this particular body. I'm committed to that, that big body of Christ out there. Every Christian is my brother. Every Christian is my sister. And, and that's enough for me. Uh, well, the scriptures would actually say that's, I mean, that's, first of all, that's very easy to say. It's very easy to be part of the invisible body. Um, it's much more difficult to be part of a local body where, um, where there are certain responsibilities required of us. But the scriptures never give any warrant for a person being part of the universal church without being part of a local church, being committed to a local church. If you think about it, how many New Testament commandments given to the Christian, like the one another commandments, for example, could be fulfilled faithfully apart from a meaningful involvement in a local church, in a particular local church? For example, bear with one another. How difficult would it be to obey the command, bear with one another, if, if you never have the need to bear with someone? If, if I'm just part of the universal church, then there's no requirement to bear with someone because if I come to this church and I don't like the way this church does things, I'll just go to the next one. And I don't have to bear with this church because I have the next one to go to. I'm part of the universal church. If we look at the New Testament commands, it would be very difficult to see how any Christian could fulfill them apart from real meaningful involvement in the life of a local body of believers. And so the church is universal, consisting of all believers who have ever been united to the Lord Jesus Christ by the invisible work of the Spirit upon the heart, but the church is also visible. Everyone who has that invisible work of the Spirit also becomes a visible Christian in their life, especially by joining visible congregations, uh, a visible church. All right, so first, the church is universal. Second, the church is local. And then third, the church is imperfect, but perpetual. It is imperfect, but perpetual, or enduring, would be another way to say that. Uh, and this is from the third paragraph of the confession. 
The purest churches under heaven are subject to mixture and error. Some have degenerated so much that they cease to be churches of Christ and become synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, Christ always has, always has had a kingdom in this world and forever shall have until the world's end, made up of those who believe in him and profess his name. So, in other words, there is no perfect church. There's no such thing as a church that has reached perfection, either locally or certainly not universally. Uh, every, if you think about, all right, so the letters of the New Testament, why was the letter to the Corinthians written by the Apostle Paul? Because Corinth was a very imperfect church. Why was the letter to the Galatians written? Because the Galatians had some serious error going on in their midst. Uh, why, why were pretty much any of the letters in the New Testament written? Because the church is imperfect. And, and over and over again, the apostles, through the inspiration of the Spirit, had to correct and, and guide the churches into better truth. And so the church is always imperfect. It's, it's never uh, free of any error in its doctrine. Uh, so obviously we believe that we, uh, as far as we can tell, have good and healthy doctrine here in the church. But there's no church that has perfect doctrine, flawless doctrine in every way. Uh, there, there's no church that has no element, no measure of sin in its congregants. Uh, there's, there's no perfect church. Charles Spurgeon has famously said, I'm sure you have heard something along these lines before, he said, if I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I should never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. So the church is imperfect, uh, always, until Christ returns on this earth. The church will always be imperfect. And it's also true that some churches are so far off course and have gone so far into error and have, have so denied the gospel, either in doctrine or in life, the confession says that they're not even called churches at all. And it quotes the biblical terminology of synagogues of Satan. They've become places where Satan actually reigns versus Christ. And so it's true. The church is imperfect. Some who call themselves churches are so far gone, they're not even considered churches at all. But what is true, the confession says, and Jesus himself says in Matthew 16, is that there will always be a true church on the earth. Christ will always sustain and preserve his church. No matter what kinds of attacks, no matter the gates of hell that might attempt to prevail against it, he says, I will build my church. And so our confidence is not in our ability to keep ourselves pure as God's bride. Our assurance, our confidence is that Christ has promised to always keep for himself a people uh, who are faithful. And that's the only hope that we have, because apart from Christ sustaining us, we would be faithless. And so the church is imperfect, but it's also perpetual. And then lastly, under this first section, the church is under Christ's headship. And this is paragraph number four. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church. In him, by, by the appointment of the Father, all power is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner for the calling, institution, order, and government of the church. The Pope of Rome can in no sense be the head of the church. Rather, he is that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition, who exalts himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God. The Lord shall destroy him with the brightness of his coming. So that's quite a statement from the originally, uh, well, from the Puritans in general. 
It's quite a statement regarding the Pope. Uh, we'll get to that in just a moment. It's one of the more interesting paragraphs in the confession as a whole, and probably one that has received uh, quite a bit of discussion. But, um, but the main point is, is straightforward enough. There is only one head of the church, and it is Christ Jesus. Colossians 1.18 tells us Christ is the head of his body. Ephesians, uh, let's see, no, yeah, Ephesians 4 tells us as well, Christ is the head of the body. Uh, all authority, all power over the church, over all things, but all, all authority and power over the church has been given to Jesus as the head. Um, that means he governs the church, he rules the church, he institutes it, he creates it, uh, he calls people into it. It is all of Christ. He is the head. Uh, he is the only authority over the church in any ultimate sense. And so anyone who would put himself in the place of, the, of head then, anyone who would claim to be the head of the church, is an antichrist, someone who attempts to put himself in the place of Christ, someone who attempts to usurp the authority of Christ. That's an antichrist. Uh, John says there are many antichrists even now in the world. In other words, he's saying there are many types of people out there who are attempting to usurp the authority of Christ and oppose his authority. And there are many antichrists. The writers of the Confession looked at the Pope. They looked uh, at the way that he had positioned himself as head or vicar of the church. They looked at the way that he claimed to have uh, supreme authority over the church. And, and they said he has all of the attributes of the Antichrist. Uh, now, whether or not the Pope is the Antichrist, I think we would probably debate uh, here among us. Whether he is that man of lawlessness that's promised in the Scriptures, uh, I would probably not say that. But is he an Antichrist, like John describes in 1 John? Absolutely. He is someone who has set himself up in the position of Christ as head of his church. Uh, and Christ alone reserves that authority. Uh, the, if most of you know the, the Pope is uh, referred to as the vicar of the church. Who is the only vicar of the church, the only uh, authoritative, ultimate authoritative representative of Christ on the earth to accomplish Christ's purpose? Can anyone think of that? Who did Christ say he was going to send? The Holy Spirit. The Pope is not the vicar of the church. The Holy Spirit is the vicar of the church. Um, and so for all of those reasons, the writers of the Confession believed the Pope has a pretty good chance of being the Antichrist. Uh, we would say, yeah, he he's certainly looks like an Antichrist. Uh, he, he certainly looks like he's opposing and usurping the authority of the true head, which is Christ. But the main point is uh, that there is one head over the church, and it is Christ, and he has all power and all authority to rule and to govern his bride. He purchased his bride with his own blood, and he possesses exclusive right to rule his bride and to govern his bride. All right, so that's the first major point then, the nature of the church. The next is the task of the church, and we'll actually, um, we won't read the, the paragraphs of the confession for these for the sake of time. Uh, they're, they're fairly straightforward. You can go back and read them on your own time. But basically, paragraphs 5 and 6 and then paragraph 14 speak of the task of the church. So what is it that the church is, is called upon to do on the earth? What's their responsibility or their role? Um, well, first of all, the task of the church is to obey Christ together. Uh, so obedience to Christ, that's the primary calling of the church, is to be a distinct people on the earth who are serious about obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is the church? It's everyone who's united to Christ. What's the task of the church? To obey Christ. It's, it's that simple. 
one of the places where we can see that most clearly is the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 18, uh, 28, not 18. I think I have, eight, I have 18 on your outline, but that's wrong. It should be Matthew 28, where we're told what the church is to do. What is the task that the Lord Jesus has given to the church before his ascension? Well, he gave it to him before his ascension. We're to do it after his ascension. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So what's the task of the church? It's to obey Christ, to make disciples, to baptize them, and to teach those disciples to obey Jesus. That's, that's the goal, the task of the church on the earth. Not only that, but the church is to edify one another. Uh, there's a number of passages there, but essentially the purpose, the reason we come together regularly as a body of Christ is to edify one another, meaning to strengthen, to build up one another in our faith. Uh, that is one of the primary reasons that the Lord has told the church to gather together is so that our faith would be strengthened through one another, through the encouragement received, so that speaking the truth to one another in love, Ephesians 4 says, the body will be built up into maturity. Um, that's what edification looks like. So the church is to obey Christ, the church is to edify one another, and, the, and then going along with that, the church is to assemble for public worship. When the, church, when the Lord left the church on the earth, he has now commanded us to come together, particularly on the first day of the week, to come together for the purpose of public worship. Uh, that is what the church does. And so to forsake assembly, to not come together, as we're warned against in Hebrews chapter 10, is to forsake one of the primary purposes for which the church has been left on the earth, uh, which is to be, to be a, a picture of God's redeemed community, assembling together for the purpose of worship. And then lastly, this is from uh, paragraph 14 of the Confession. I think I lost my... Dead battery. I'm sorry, y'all can hear me in the back, right? Yeah. Um, so, lastly, is paragraph 14, which has to do with partnering with other local churches. And so, basically, the idea there is that no church can, can, can faithfully fulfill all that Christ has called them to be and all that Christ has called them to do, apart from, in some measure, partnering with other local churches, uh, having some measure of fellowship with other local churches. Um, and so, church is called to commune, to pray for, to help, to support, to come alongside other local churches in, in their endeavors, in their gospel efforts. No time to stop. We have to make it 15 paragraphs. <laughs> All right, so that's, that's the second heading there, the task of the church, to obey Christ, to edify one another, to assemble for public worship, and to partner with other local churches. Uh, if we want to be a faithful church then, as Christ church, these are four of the things that we need to take very seriously. Included in that, obeying Christ is evangelism, the Great Commission. Um, and so these, these are uh, ways that we can measure, are we being faithful to the task to which Christ has called us? Are we obeying Christ together, edifying one another, assembling for public worship, and partnering with other local churches? And then thirdly, this third section here, the authority of the church. Um, and this is paragraph 7 of the Confession, so I'll read that. It says, To each of these churches gathered in this way, 
according to the mind of Christ declared in his word, the Lord has given all the power and authority which is in any way necessary to carry out that order of worship and discipline which he has instituted for them to observe, together with commands and rules for the proper and right exertion and execution of that power. All right, so what's the confession saying there in paragraph 7? It's talking about power or authority in the local church. And basically what it's saying is that Christ has given authority and power directly to the local church. The error that it's refuting here is the idea that there's a a hierarchical structure or system of government that goes above the local church. Um, So an example would be a local church over which then there's some sort sort of um, governing council or, or, uh, or perhaps a presbytery or something like that, that, uh, that has authority over the local church in some ways. And then that presbytery basically is directly accountable to Christ. Uh, but in uh, our understanding of what the scriptures teach, Christ has given authority directly to the local church, and the local church is directly accountable to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and so what, is, what does that mean? Well, it basically means when it comes to how we worship, Okay, so how, how does Christ church worship? Who determines uh, what we believe? Who determines um, what our, stru- our church structure should be? Who determines uh, who the officers in the church are? Who determines who's, who the members of the church are? Who determines when discipline cases ought to happen or, or when discipline ought to take place in the local church? Who determines those things at Christ church, a local body of believers? Well, according to our polity, who determines those things? The church does. Yeah, the, the church. Christ has given the authority to the church. Uh, Matthew 18, uh, where it's talking about discipline, it goes, on, it goes on to say that whatever the church looses on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Whatever the church binds on earth shall be bound in heaven. Uh, and there's lots of questions around what that means specifically, but the idea is Christ has given a great measure of authority to the local church to, to make decisions like who ought to be recognized as a member of Christ's body uh, and, and who should govern over Christ's body in, in the offices of elder and deacon. Those types of decisions have been given to the church, uh, not to a higher governing body or a denomination. We see that in a number of places. Uh, one example is in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, what happens in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the beginning of the, of the chapter? Anyone think? Is it a good chapter or a bad chapter? A good situation or a bad situation? It's a bad situation. Lots of immorality going on uh, of kinds that not even the Gentiles would speak of. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 that the church ought to remove this particular individual from the church because of his sin, because it, apparently it's, it's unrepentant. Uh, this this immorality that's unrepentant, Paul says, you ought to remove this person from your midst. And then in the next, well, actually, a couple letters later that he writes to the Corinthians, our second Corinthians, he says, uh, basically, that he's speaking of an individual that's been disciplined. He says, punished, been put out of the church. Um, It apparently has come to the point now where that individual is repentant, and he's ready to be restored to the church. And Paul says something very interesting there, um, actually, let's turn there. If you have your Bibles, you can go there with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. It's helpful to see how Paul, so this is the Apostle Paul, uh, who's obviously been given a great measure of responsibility and authority by Christ over the churches as an apostle, a unique apostle. 
an apostle of the sort that we don't have any today. And this is what he says in verse 6, talking about restoring this individual back into membership of the church. He says, sufficient for such a one is this punishment, punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. So he says, this punishment that was inflicted on him by the majority. What does Paul mean by that in 2 Corinthians chapter 2? Who is the majority that, that Paul's speaking about? You think it's the majority of the apostles? No. The majority of the elders in the church agreed in Corinth that this individual should be put out. No, he says the majority in the sense that the church as a whole came together and there was general consent among all of the members that this individual ought to be removed from their midst from membership because of his sin, because of the fact that he's giving evidence that he is not walking in obedience to Christ and his life is contradicting his profession of faith. And so Paul says he was removed, punished by the majority, and now he's saying receive him again, affirm him, comfort him. Uh, implying, again, it will be the majority that receives him again. The whole body of the church receives him back into membership. Uh, and so all of that to make the point, the authority that Christ has given for things like church discipline, church membership, elders, deacons, all of that authority has been given to the local church. Not just the leaders of the local church, but the whole church has been entrusted with the authority in those sorts of matters. All right, but that authority is not limitless, certainly not without guidance or direction. Uh, that authority is, this is letter C on the outline, uh, that authority is directed and limited by God's word. Um, so to say that the church has been given authority by Christ simply means that everything that Christ has commanded the church to do, he's given the church the authority to do. What Christ has not commanded the church to do, he has not given the church authority to do. Um, and so proper biblical authority in the church is only uh, to the degree that we're walking according to the commands of Christ. We, we can't claim to have authority in something that Christ has not commanded his church to do. And so it's guided, it's directed, and it's limited by the word of Christ. And that prevents there from being uh, a uh, totalitarian, ruthless leadership in the church. The leadership is bound to lead only according to the word of Christ. The church is bound to exercise authority only according to the word of Christ. All right, and then fourthly, the officers of Christ. This is, these are paragraphs 8 to 11. So the biblical offices consist of elders and deacons. That's paragraph 8. We won't read that for the sake of time. Basically, there are only two, elder, two offices in the church, elders and deacons. Elders are sometimes called bishops in the Bible, Elders are sometimes called pastors, but they're all the same office. There's only one office of elder, pastor, bishop, whatever you want to call it in the scriptures. There's just one office of elder. There's another office of deacon, the only two offices in the church. We see that in Philippians uh, chapter 1, verse 1, where Paul greets the church along with the elders and deacons, he says. He lists the two offices together. Um, so there's elders, there are deacons. The elders and deacons are, first of all, members of the church. Uh, so in some systems of church government, you have elders, and then separate from the elders, you have the membership of the church. The elders technically belong to the higher governing authority, and the members belong to the local church. But in, in our understanding of church polity, uh, according to the scriptures, the elder is first of all a member, and he is appointed as a member um, to the particular role of 
elder in terms of how he functions in leadership, but that doesn't uh, make him a non-member any longer. We're still under the same type of accountability, uh, the same type of submission to the leadership of the church that any other individual in the church would be required of, uh, would be required to have. And so uh, the officers then are elders and they are deacons and they are appointed, as I've mentioned, by the common congregational consent. Um, So if me and Sean and Anthony decided that we thought a particular individual should be a deacon in the church, do we have the freedom to make that individual a deacon in the church on our own? No. Christ has not given that kind of authority to the elders. He's given that authority to the church. And so if Sean and Anthony and I, we believe that a certain individual should be a, uh, an officer in the church, whether elder or deacon, we can recommend that individual to the church, but it's only by the common consent, the common vote of the members of the church that any individual can actually be appointed to the office of elder or deacon. All right, the primary responsibilities of the pastors are listed in paragraph 10. Uh, I will summarize those. First of all, prayer. Secondly, the word. And third, oversight. It's pretty simple. That's, that's how the, the Bible describes the role of a pastor or an elder in the church. They give themselves to prayer, they give themselves to the ministry of the word, and they give themselves to the oversight of the church, uh, the spiritual oversight. In Hebrews 13, we're told that the leaders in the church watch over the souls of the members and will give an account for them. Uh, before Christ. And uh, in 1 Peter 5, we're told that the leaders exercise oversight. The word oversight there is basically just they, they govern over, they manage, they rule and lead and direct the church according to the scriptures. Um, and so those are the responsibilities given to the elders. Prayer, the word, and oversight. What about deacons? The confession actually doesn't say anything about the particular role of deacons, But what's the role of a deacon? Anybody want to suggest what the role of a deacon might be? Serving others, yeah. So the word deacon means servant. So deacons are basically formally appointed servants in the church. And I think often in our context, our evangelical context, um, deacons are primarily thought of, and rightly so in a lot lot of ways, thought of as those who care for the physical needs of the congregation, uh, which is it's not wrong. In a lot of ways, deacons do care for the physical needs of the congregation, things like building maintenance and finances and other uh, things like that. They administrate a lot of that so that the elders can give themselves to the, to the word and to prayer and to oversight of, of the uh, spiritual state of the church. But we shouldn't limit deacons to just those types of things like buildings and maintenance and finances, um, as important as those are for the functioning of the church. Deacons, I think, are, are more accurately uh, understood biblically to basically do anything that's needed in the local church so that the pastors can freely give themselves to the word, prayer, and oversight. Uh, and so what that might look like is, uh, is overseeing a certain ministry in the church. Um, and there's a, there's a quote here. Let me find it real quick by a fellow that I was reading that I thought was a helpful way to put the responsibility of deacons. He says, He says, the elders are assisted by deacons who are responsible for organizing and implementing practical ministry objectives in the life of the congregation. That's a helpful way to think about it. Practical ministry objectives in the life of the congregation. Um, So yes, that involves building maintenance and things like that. 
Uh, but it also involves, okay, where do, as, as, as the elders and the leadership pray about the direction of the church, and we think, where do we want to move as a church in obedience to Christ? Then we think, well, how can those who have been entrusted with service in the church by the church, the deacons, how have those who have been formally appointed and recognized as godly and mature spiritual men, how can they help in moving the church in that direction, uh, implementing practical ministries in the life of the church? And so all of that to say deacons, yes, do a lot of the groundwork in terms of finances and building and material needs and physical needs in the life of the body, uh, but they're far more uh, involved in other matters of the church than, would, uh, than we would think if we only defined deacon that way. Um, and I'll go ahead and say our deacons are involved in far more than those types of things in the life of our church, and we're very, very thankful for them. Then next, the, uh, let's see, where are we? The, we've talked about the appointment of officers, primary responsibilities of pastors. All right, what about other teachers and preachers? Letter D, this is paragraph 11, I believe. Basically, it's saying, even though pastors, elders, have been given the primary responsibility of teaching and preaching, that's not to say that no other individual is able to do it in the church. It's not to say that no one else is allowed to preach or teach. Um, and again, that's there because in certain contexts, only those who are licensed by a greater governing body have the authority to preach in a church. Basically, this is saying, no, if, uh, if the church agrees that this person is, is mature, godly, and gifted, uh, then they can teach and preach in the life of the church, even though they're not an elder, uh, formally recognized as an elder in the life of the church. All right, we've made it to the last one, the last heading, which is good. We've got a few more minutes before we finish. The last couple of, uh, last few paragraphs really have to do with, first of all, issues in the local church, and then how those issues should then be uh, brought to the attention of other local churches when required, uh, when necessary. And so first, there's resolving issues that have to do with personal offenses in the life of the local church. So what happens when someone is personally offended in a church? Uh, we've talked about how there's no perfect church, and there won't be a perfect church on the earth until Christ returns. So if there's no perfect church, then the assumption is there's also going to be offenses at times in the church. There are going to be sins that are committed and people that are hurt and offended by one another's sin. And so what is the church to do when there are those kinds of personal offenses. And this is paragraph 13. It says, If church members have been in any way offended and have performed the duty required of them towards the person by or at whom they are offended, they ought not to disturb any church order or absent themselves from the assembly of the church or the administration of any ordinances because of that offense with or against any of their fellow members. Rather, the offended members should wait upon Christ that is, expect Christ to act, in the further proceeding of the church. So what is a person to do when they have been offended by another individual in the local church? Well, Jesus tells us the, the right procedure for that. Uh, he tells us what it looks like to respond to personal offenses in the life of, of his body. Matthew 18 is the primary passage where we learn what it looks like for us to go to a brother or a sister who has offended us. We go to them one-on-one, -on -one. we make known to them the way that they've offended us, we make known to them the way we believe they're in sin, we call them to repentance graciously with a spirit of gentleness, as Galatians 6 reminds us, uh, with humility, we, we point out their sin to them, we call them to repentance, we remind them of their uh, responsibility before Christ to walk in obedience, 
We do that one-on-one. And then if that doesn't work and they don't repent, we take another brother with us or another sister with, with us, and we go and, uh, and, and together we approach this individual and we admonish and we exhort and we encourage him or her to repent and turn away from their sin and offense. And if that doesn't work, then we take it to the church, we're told in Matthew 18. We present it to the church and then we leave it to the church to determine the best course of action moving forward. And so what the confession is saying is if you've done all of that, you've gone through that whole procedure, you've talked to your brother or your sister one-on-one, you've taken another brother with you, you've presented it to the church, and, and still there doesn't seem to be much resolution, what should you do? Well, the sinful tendency of our hearts is to distance ourselves, to pull ourselves away because we have our feelings hurt or uh, it's hard to be around the church because we feel like they haven't uh, gone far enough yet in dealing with this particular issue that, that we're wrestling with. Uh, and so the confession says you shouldn't distance yourself from the church. You shouldn't stop meeting with the church just because you've been offended by somebody. Uh, you shouldn't disrupt the peace of the church, it says. Uh, you should continue peaceably. And you should wait upon Christ and trust that the one who governs his church will also lead the church to a right conclusion and to right action regarding the individual. And if it doesn't seem like it's doing that, then you trust Christ with it, and you entrust it to him. But what if, after all of that still, you really believe that there is a problem that's not been dealt with, something that's not been resolved, or or there's some other issue in the church that the local church together agrees, you know what, we can't solve this, We've, we've worked through this all we can, and we've come to the end of ourselves, and we don't know where to go from here, then what does a local church do? I've already argued that a local church is autonomous in its authority. There's no governing body over it, uh, biblically speaking. And so if there's an issue in the local church, we can't go to some governing body who's over us and say, hey, you, you are our authority, help us work through this. So what does a local church who's autonomous do when they have an issue that they need to work through? Well, the confession says in the final paragraph, hang in there for three more minutes. There may be difficulties or differences, either in matters of doctrine or administration, in which either the church, uh, the churches in general, are or any one church is involved, affecting their peace, union, and edification. Likewise, any member or members of any church may be injured in or by any disciplinary proceedings not agreeable to truth and order. In such cases, it is according to the mind of Christ that many churches holding communion together through their appointed messengers meet to consider and to give their advice concerning the matter in dispute, which should be reported to all the churches concerned. However, these assembled messengers are not entrusted with any genuine church power or authority, nor do they have any jurisdiction over the churches themselves to exercise any censures over any churches or individuals or to impose their determination on the churches or officers." So basically what that's saying is that when a church has a problem that they can't figure out, then they should go to this body of churches that have agreed to fellowship with one another, a trusted group of churches. uh, It's not an authority over that local church, but it's a friend. It's a group of friends, sister churches, who help us sort through issues and problems in the life of our church. And what it's saying is, If there's an issue when it comes to discipline or doctrine or some other issue in the church, we go to this group of individuals, these messengers from these other churches, they help us sort through it, they give us their counsel, then we return, we come back to the church and we say, hey, we met with all of these other brothers and here is what they've counseled us to do. But the church is not required to obey that counsel 
That counsel is there to help us, to help us think through things, and then we have the responsibility to make the decision ourselves as a local body of believers, directly accountable to Christ. All right, so all of that to say, that's why we are voting on the advisory council on Sunday night at the members' meeting. If you're a member at Christ Church, this is what we'll be voting on, is this group of trusted individuals that the church has said, if, if there's ever an issue in the life of our local body that we feel like we need outside counsel on to come and help us work through it and sort through it, these are the individuals we'll go to. Five individuals from three different local churches that we'll be voting on Sunday evening. And that's why we do it, uh, both because of the biblical principle that uh, wisdom is found in seeking counsel. It's foolish to think that you're wise in your own understanding, but there's wisdom in seeking counsel. Um, And because of the way that the confession explains it here, we as a church have found it necessary and important to implement that in the life of our own church by uh, installing five individuals as uh, an advisory council in the life of our church. All right, well, that is it for the chapter on the church. I'm sure that we are all glad now that we have clarity on the Pope and the Antichrist and all other matters pertaining to the church. We'll finish in just a moment singing uh, the church's one foundation, which is hymn number 328, which reminds us that one, the church is far from perfect in this life. We'll sing that in just a moment. But it also reminds us that we are one with every believer throughout all time, and we are destined to be with our Savior together. And it is a glorious hope that belongs to the Church of Christ. So let's pray together, and then we'll sing to finish for the evening. Our Father, we thank you for your gift in giving us the church. We thank you that uh, we get to belong to something that's called your body, the body of your Son, something that's called the bride of your Son, the pillar and support of the truth, the household of God, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you that we, as your people, have the privilege of receiving those types of titles. Um, We recognize tonight that any good gift, any blessing that we've received as your church has come to us only because Christ shed his blood to purchase us, Uh, that he so loved the church that he laid down his life and bled and died for her. And so we thank you that Jesus did come to seek and to save sinners like us, We pray that you would help us to be faithful members of your church body here on earth. Help us to love Christ, to obey him, and to do that especially with one another in the context of the church that you've placed us in. We thank you for our Savior. We worship you in his name. Amen.